Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, this week, we continue our series, The Crossroad, with a message entitled, Is Jesus God? So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 8, verses 45 to 59, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I've entitled my message about as bluntly as I know how. Is Jesus God? I can't think of any issue, theoretical or practical, that's more important than that question. Now, you might wonder about that. So let's consider some scenarios. You've just gotten laid off, and you know, if you don't get a job soon, well, it's your mortgage. Or if you don't get a good score on the SAT exams, well, your opportunity for a future just vanishes. Or test results are back, in which you have had that lump in your left breast checked, and Your doctor has called you and has told you to come in to discuss the results. So when I say that there are no more important questions in life than the question of whether or not Jesus is God, well, I'm not speaking out of ignorance. I am as a human being as prone to disappointment and suffering and the uncertainty of life as anyone else. I do know about important things. And it's not just as if I think, you know, only personal things are important. See, I, like you, care about the economy of our country. I also care about pollution, and like almost everyone else, I want to live in a world where we take proper care of our environment. Lots of things are important. I'm not denying that. But in all the things that we face, I mean everything, the overarching question is this. Is there a God? Is he all-powerful? And does the one true God care about me? For if God is the greatest of all realities, and if he's capable of caring for me, then, well, I hope you see, the question of God is bigger than all the other questions. And therefore, the question of whether Jesus Christ is God come to us in human flesh and dwelling among us. Well, I hope you see that question is the greatest question. I can't think of more important things than that. Settle that one thing. And the answer, if it's positive, is going to define and shape and direct every other problem that we have. Historic Christianity has always said, we know who Jesus is. He is God. But what do we mean by that? Didn't Jesus claim to be the Son of God? And didn't he pray to God? Yes, we do say all of that, that he is the second person of the three persons who are the one God. Now, in the passage we're about to read, there is a question. I want to refer to it right now. It's found in verse 53. Just who do you make yourself out to be? That's the question. By the way, that question, when it was first asked, was an accusation. It was asked with white-hot anger. It's like saying, just how self-absorbed and arrogant are you really? Yet in spite of its sarcastic tone, I want to pick up on that question. Just who does Jesus make himself to be? Not what does historic Christianity say, but rather, what did Jesus say? So let's begin with the discussion in John 8, 45. It's Jesus speaking in a conversation that's getting increasingly testy. It's filled with emotion. Accusations are now easily being made. And Jesus says, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Well, the truth has to do with the identity of Jesus. The word truth is used 27 times in the book of John. The first use is found in chapter 1, verse 14, where Jesus is described as being full of truth. Jesus claims in John 14, verse 6, that he is the truth. In other words, he not only speaks the truth, but the truth and Jesus, same thing. 
when he's before Pilate. He tells him that everyone on the side of truth listens to him. And so the truth comes up over and over again in the Gospel of John. Now, we find that Jesus claims that he always speaks the truth. Now, that's itself a tall order. I know that all of us have stories of, you know, politicians who've lied and a business person, perhaps, who has lied or a spouse who has lied. We don't like people who lie. But could any one of you listening to me right now make the claim that from the time you were born until the present, you have always and only told the truth? I hope you see. Who would say that about himself or herself? But that's exactly what Jesus said. So let's go to verse 46, which says even more. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Now, here's an important distinction that's made in verse 46. Jesus doesn't say, who here charges me with sin? In fact, you know that Jesus was often charged with sin. He was charged with breaking the Sabbath, for instance. But Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying, if you were to make an official charge of sinning against me, any sin at all, you would not be able to convict me of anything. See, I've learned a little lesson about life. Here it is. The farther any human being is away from God, the more sure they are that everything is just fine. But the closer we get to God, the more we're sure that things are not fine. Take, for instance, Isaiah. He's in the temple and he cries out, Woe is me, I am undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips. David, the man after God's own heart, says, Against you and against you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Or the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1 verse 16 calls himself the foremost of sinners. See, I don't know about you, but I've sensed this in my own life. You know, when I first came to Christ, I actually believed I only had a couple of issues that needed to be dealt with. And they included things like my use of regular profanity. But the closer I got to God, the more I became aware that there were other things, and I became devastated by the ugliness of my own sin. Well, now, interestingly enough, Jesus even called his own disciples sinners. But when he spoke about himself, he says, which of you can convict me of sin? He applied the term sinner to everyone, absolutely everyone, except himself. So let's review. He claimed always to speak the truth. He claimed to be without sin. Now to verses 46b to 47. If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So listen to his third claim. He claims that the only reason someone might not believe him is that they have a moral defect. They're not of God. So isn't that amazing? I mean, what morally integrous person would say something like that? Now to verse 48. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So notice the response to what Jesus is saying. It's, it's immediate and it's raw. They give him a racial slur, first of all. They call him a Samaritan. And then they say he's demon-possessed. I mean, after all, who would say the kind of things that he's saying? You know, the late John Stott once told a story of having received a letter from a man who said, God had two sons. Jesus was the first and I'm the second. And he looked at the return address on the envelope and he noticed it was addressed from a psychiatric hospital in his area. It had come from one of the patients. So I hope you see. That might have been the response to Jesus. But the Pharisees don't call him crazy. They call him evil. See, at this point, you would think the conversation could go in at least two different directions. 
On the one hand, Jesus could have said, well, wait a minute. You don't understand what I mean. I, I think you're overreacting. I'm actually not an egomaniac. I, I'm just trying to say some things for effect. But that's not what happens here. In fact, rather than downplaying his amazing statements, he makes even more statements, statements that make even the last ones seem like a minor thing. So go to verses 49 to 51. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Let me put Jesus' words in another way. He's saying, you think I'm demon-possessed, do you? Well, demons exist to do evil. They, in fact, hate God. And I, on the other hand, don't hate God at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And if you watched me, you'll see that I bring great honor to God. But just in case you think that statement is self-serving, let me explain it further. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back or to look good in front of you. On the other hand, there is someone who is working to make me look good, and that person is God himself, and he's the judge of all men. Indeed, what I'm saying is so important because anyone who believes in me will never see death. You see what I mean? I mean, if you think that what he said prior to this was shocking, well, I mean, now look at the response. So go to verses 52 to 53. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Well, now it's you know, it's time to stop beating around the bush. You, Jesus, are saying things that no sane human being has ever said before. No holy man, no prophet, no philosopher, not even Abraham himself said those kinds of things. It's time you told us what you really think about yourself. Yeah, indeed, they're right. It's time that Jesus told us who he thought he was. Imagine walking the very streets that Jesus walked, or placing your foot into the Sea of Galilee. If experiencing the very places Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others lived and taught is something you've always wanted to do, then Back to the Bible Canada's Israel Experience has been designed just for you. Well, we're heading to Israel in 2021, and we'd like to invite you to join Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, special musical guests, and the Back to the Bible Canada team for this amazing trip from April 11th to the 19th, 2021. Experiencing the sights, sounds, history, and the culture of Israel, making the Bible come alive. This is a life-changing trip that you won't want to miss, and, and you have plenty of time to prepare. So to learn more and register, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebibletours.ca. I want you to notice something very specific. You know, Jesus began by saying that if anyone keeps his word, he will never see death. And the Jews respond by saying, you say we will never taste death. See the difference? The difference is between seeing and tasting. In other words, Jesus never promised we would not taste death. He did promise we would never see death. 
Now, is that important? Well, I think it is. So, for instance, Jesus himself spoke of tasting death. In Matthew 16, 28, he uses the phrase to taste death as a synonym for physical death. And in Jesus' day, the rabbis would talk about drinking the cup of death. And in Hebrews 2, verse 9, we're told that Jesus tasted death on the cross. So death is a real and a palatable experience. There is a taste to it. And the implication is the taste is bitter. It's the experience of our spirit being torn from our body. And Jesus never promised that you and I would not taste the reality of physical death. And that is important to remember. If Christ delays his coming, every one of us will taste the bitterness of our own personal death. I mean, it may come suddenly, it may linger, but it comes. And it comes to all, no matter who you are or what you believe in. And Jesus never denied that. But he did say that we would not see death. Now, that might be problematic because sometimes in the New Testament, it does use the phrase to see death as simply a synonym for physical death. It's just like tasting death. But Psalm 89 verse 48 uses that very phrase in a very interesting way. What man can live and never see death, it says, who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol. Now, that's Hebrew parallelism. That is, it's finding different ways of saying the same thing twice. The verse says that seeing death is the same thing as seeing the power of Sheol. Now, in the Old Testament, the fate of the dead was not always clearly understood, but they did talk about Sheol an awful lot. Sheol was the place of the dead. It was the land of shadows where the dead lived. It's referred to as down. It's a place of silence. It's a place of darkness. Ultimately, the dead pass through a valley, what David will call the valley of the shadow of death. And there they will join the many who have gone down before them, and there they await the judgment from God. That's Sheol. In fact, throughout the Bible, the place of the unrighteous dead is sometimes referred to as, you know, in 1 Peter chapter 3, it's a prison, or in 2 Peter 2, it's a gloomy dungeon where one awaits the final judgment. It's awaiting that already has a foretaste of the final punishment. And according to the Bible, seeing death, well, that's not a great relief. It is the pathway to Sheol. I mean, suicide or euthanasia doesn't end your problems. It only takes them to a deeper and a more profound level. But it's precisely here that Jesus speaks. You know, back in John 5, 24, Jesus made it clear that the one who sees death is the one who comes under judgment, and the one who doesn't see death is the one that receives eternal life. In other words, there's no gloomy dungeon, and there's no land of shadows, and there's no terrible time awaiting the final judgment for the one who believes and keeps the word of Jesus. That was his claim. And that's what Paul would say as well in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. He said, yes, we are of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So to those who are unsure about this, let's be perfectly clear. For the Christian, being away from the body that is being physically dead means we are now at home with the Lord. So let's recap. I hope you hear what Jesus claimed about himself. He claimed always to speak the truth. He claimed to be without sin. He claimed a moral defect was the only reason anyone didn't obey his teaching. And he claims more. 
He claims to be the key to escaping the final judgment. The only way you're going to escape Sheol or the land of shadows, he says, is to believe in me. In other words, the final judgment is taken away in him. He's the key to eternity. And that's astounding. I mean, he's making a, a great deal of claims here. Now to John 8, 53. They ask Jesus whether he thinks he's greater than Abraham, and he gives the answer in verse 54. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. So don't miss that. Here now is the next claim that Jesus makes. He claims that God is his Father. That's personal. Until Jesus, no one ever spoke about God in that way. Jesus did. Even when he was a boy, he claimed that the temple in Jerusalem was his father's house. Jesus claimed he was God's son. Not one of God's sons. He didn't say God is our father. He said God is my father. But he's still not done. Let's go to verses 55 and 56. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. (laughs) Well, this language is getting rough. They're liars, but he's a truth teller. And furthermore, says Jesus, you asked if I thought I was greater than Abraham. Look, Abraham spent his life longing to see me. And then the day came when he saw me. And that was the high point of his life. That's amazing. You know, the rabbis in Jesus' day taught that Abraham rejoiced at the thought of the fulfillment of the promises God had made to him. So, for instance, God had promised Abraham that the entire earth would be blessed through Abraham. Now, from that text, which is Genesis 12, 1 to 3, the rabbis taught that Abraham understood that promise in terms of the coming of the kingdom of God. So, said the rabbis, Abraham believed that when God's kingdom comes and God reigns over the whole earth, then the earth would be blessed through Abraham. That, they said, is what Abraham believed and what he longed for. But Jesus replaces that. He doesn't deny that Abraham was looking forward to the kingdom of God, but he adds, well, he says, Abraham was waiting breathlessly to see me. He knew that to see me was the fulfillment of everything he had hoped for. Again, you see what Jesus is claiming. It's it's breathtaking. But of course, Jesus didn't stop there. He says, Abraham actually saw me. And if you're wondering what he was referring to, I'm sure. He's referring to an incident that's recorded in Genesis 18. Jesus says, I am the great God who came to Abraham to announce the birth of Isaac. When you read Genesis 18, that visitation of Abraham, that was me. Now, verses 57 to 58. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I hope you noticed that. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. Now, of everything Jesus said, that last claim, well, frankly, that one takes the cake. You know, there's a theory today among some people that Jesus was the first being that God had created, and then God made everything else after creating Jesus. I mean, those people who hold that theory think that statement honors Jesus. Jesus denied it. Not I existed before Abraham. No, no, that's not it. Rather, I'm the ever-existing one. That's what he said. I didn't predate everything. I am uncreated. 
I never came into being. I eternally am. Every Jew knew that those words, I am, referred to the words that God had spoken back in Exodus 3.14. Moses had asked God, what is your name? And God said, I am who I am. And then he said, you tell Pharaoh, I am has sent me to you. So what's God's name? His name is I am. He needs no other name. He is the God unlike all the others. He is the God who exists, the ever-existent one. Here's the thing about Jesus. He claims for himself the very same name that only God can claim for himself. Indeed, Jesus claims the sacred name. It's a name no rabbi would even utter on his lips, lest he be guilty of blasphemy. And yet, Jesus claims that name for himself, that sacred name. That name, he says, is my name. Now to the very last verse here, John 8, 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. See, I began by saying that the question of the existence of God is the most important and profound question that we can ask. But here's Jesus who says, I am that one true God who has come into the world. Now, if that's true, then nothing but nothing is remotely as important as that one thing. The great creator not only exists, but he has entered into our world and come as a man to save us from our sins. That's the gospel. John, let me ask a blunt question. Why is the battle over the identity of Jesus so important? Yeah, it's probably the most important battle. The first 500 years of the Christian church were almost entirely taken up in that. And so, I mean, we know that uh, the, the church almost was split apart over these issues, and yet people wrestled with them with all the vigor that they had. It tells us something. Um, you know, what manner of man is this, said the disciples at one point in time. And uh, it is important that we come to terms with that. If we are to follow Jesus, whom are we following? Um, if uh, Jesus has come to teach us the truth, who is this man who tells us the truth? So uh, these kind of questions in the end will lead us to a conclusion that we must worship Jesus. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Crossroad, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Have you heard Dr. John's latest series in the book of the Psalms, Finding Pleasure in God? Well, if you haven't, or if you'd like to hear it again, or you want to send it to a friend, we want to send Finding Pleasure in God on CD as our gift to you. We also want to include Dr. John's series on Psalm 42, To the King, accompanied by a limited edition illustration of Psalm 42 on a magnet for your kitchen, your office, or shop, all reminding you of God's faithfulness. These three ministry resources, all free as our gift. Finding Pleasure with God, To the King, and the limited edition Psalm 42 illustration on a magnet. To ask for your free gifts this month, or to offer a gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.